Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The Business Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful and, yes, some not-so-successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit. Today we have with us Haroon Bahate, a Main Street M&A advisor from Michigan, who shares with us some interesting deals, which includes a fourth-generation business that was started in the 1890s, well over a hundred years ago. As you'll learn from this deal story, you'll see how the owner was able to double the actual sales revenue in the business in less than a year after acquiring it. Next, Haroon shares a story on how a lower valuation on a business appraisal can dramatically change the economics of a deal, but how, if you understand the reasons that the appraisal came in lower than anticipated, you can actually get the appraiser to change their valuation, something that rarely happens. Knowing what the valuation is and how it was arrived at can help you work with the appraiser in presenting a case for a higher evaluation. In dealing with a franchise business, Haroon shares one of the things that all buyers and sellers need to be aware of when selling or acquiring a franchise business. Knowing some of these issues in advance can actually avoid a lot of problems when dealing with a franchise business during a sales process, especially when you have to work with a larger franchisor. Finally, Haroon shares how a business that was acquired seven years earlier as an asset sale which basically means that the business was purchased for pennies on the dollar for a deeply discounted value of the assets, and how the owner returned seven years later with a business that had grown 100x in sales, and how the business was sold to a buyer who was actually planning on taking the business to the next level all over again. This is Marvin L. Storm with Business Exit Stories. Today, we're here with Haroon Bahati. Would you give yourself a quick introduction here and talk a little bit about where you're from? Absolutely, Marvin. Um, As Marvin said, Haroon Bahati um, from Capital Business Brokerage. We're located in Farmington Hills, Michigan, and uh, we specialize in um, helping uh, our clients sell their businesses in Southeast Michigan. Well, great. We're going to talk a little bit about several of the transactions you've been involved in that had their twists and turns and may have had some challenges as you tried to get them across the closing line. So what we're going to do now is chat a little bit about some of those transactions. So why don't you share some of the details of the transaction, who the owners were, what type of business, and really what was the driving force to get them all teed up for ready to exit their business and share a little bit about how those transactions unfolded. Absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the transactions that comes to mind, um, it's an automotive business that we uh, recently sold. And, um, you know, it was uh, the sellers came to us because they wanted to retire. And uh, it was a single owner um, company. Um, the, um, the seller was ready to retire and uh, move on to the next chapter of their life. Uh, we were able to help them uh, value the business. And uh, then um, we moved on to bringing the business to market. 
Um, it was fantastic. We had a lot of interest uh, in the business uh, from multiple buyers. And eventually we found uh, the most perfect buyer who was already a serial entrepreneur, owned uh, a lot of other automotive businesses, and they decided to make an offer. Let me uh, jump in here and just ask a couple of questions. We haven't had a lot of transactions that involve auto facilities and things of that nature. Can you share a little bit about how large the facility was or how many lifts it had, square footage of the facility perhaps, and a little bit about how long the business had been around? Absolutely. So the business has been around for about three decades. So it was a long established business. Now, from a size perspective, the lifts, they probably can service about, um, I would say, you know, 10 to 15 vehicles at a time. Um, so it was a, a smaller Main Street size business. I'm trying to think of any other details that I can add to it without disclosing too much information about the business. Sure. Was the primary motivation just for retirement or they were looking to move on to something else? Uh, primary motivation was retirement. Absolutely. Which is, uh, in our opinion, one of the best case scenarios because you already have a well-established business and it's not uh, a distressed business per se, especially when most of the time when uh, sellers are looking to retire. A lot of operations like this comes with real estate because the owner has purchased a real estate at some point along the line. Is that the situation here? Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. And it makes the deal a lot more attractive for a potential buyer as well, especially well-established buyers. Now, they typically, typically like to acquire businesses, especially in the automotive field with the real estate, because it gives them a lot of uh, protection uh, for continuing the business on and uh, potentially having uh, not having any disagreements with landlords or lease issues down the road. You found the perfect buyer. Serial entrepreneur, you said. Was he an auto mechanic or did he have a lot of experience in the field? Yes, he did have a lot of experience in the field, but he's not a mechanic himself. But they had a great system in place to hire the right people. They have good management in place that was basically overseeing their operations. Um, and it was a good structure. They had uh, figured out a system um, that helps them expand and add more facilities to their portfolio, um, you know, without uh, adding on any additional, um, you know, workforce within their management structure. So they had other facilities. Was it two, three, four, ten? What kind of operation was it? Uh, they had about five other facilities. So they sort of had their act together, I guess, and knew what they were doing. Absolutely. You made an interesting comment there. They felt that they could add this new facility, this new business that they were acquiring without really increasing any significant personnel or other overhead expenses and maybe even reduce some and spread it over a larger base of revenue. Absolutely. A lot of the good buyers that we're working with currently that are uh, you know, more uh, seasoned business people, they have really good systems in place that helps them expand, um, which when I talk about systems, it's financial reporting, their HR departments, their marketing plans, and they tend to merge all those uh, functions of the business into a central location, which helps them expand, uh, you know, a lot easier as compared to um, someone who's not as organized. So how did the transaction unfold? Oh, uh, it was a lot of back and forth. Uh, between the buyers and the sellers. But uh, at last, uh, the sellers were motivated to sell. Um, they were ready to move on to the next phase in life and uh, the buyers were motivated to buy. So eventually, uh, we were able to come to a price that both parties were happy with. Um, in this case, they decided to uh, go through the SBA and um, go through the financing through a bank um, to acquire the facility. Uh, so that's always interesting. That comes with uh, you know a lot of challenges in itself. 
but uh, we were pretty much uh, we went through the financing process. We were able to help the sellers and the buyers um, get all their documents in order, um, getting anything that the bank needed to get the financing done. So when the actual proposal was made to the SBA and they were talking a little bit about how the management was going to be handled, did they bring in an outside manager or did they promote from within? That's a very interesting point that you touched on, Marvin. Bankers are looking to finance a deal in two different ways. One would be uh, the purchaser being the owner operator. And in the other case, it would be an acquisition. So when the bankers are coming up and analyzing the deal and, and figuring out what amount they can finance, they will be they will look at if it's an owner operated business, they will typically um, deduct uh, the owner operator operator salary from the cash flow. Whereas when it's, we're looking at it from an acquisition perspective, um, then they're not adding a full-fledged um, salary for an owner-operator. They might add a smaller portion of that just for a manager, especially if it's um, you know if someone from within the company that's being promoted to act as a lead or assistant manager for that facility. Um, then the the penalization to the cash flow will not be as much as. Um, if someone was coming in as an owner-operator to purchase that business. Makes it a little bit more attractive for financing purposes. Absolutely, because at the end of the day, the banks are looking at the uh, the cash flow that's going to be generated and is it sufficient to... Um, uh, you know, is it sufficient for debt service? Well, I imagine when someone internally gets promoted, it probably did a lot for the morale and confidence that a lot of things weren't going to change and things were going to continue on. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. A hundred percent. You know, one of the biggest things that we come across is now once the employees find out that uh, the company is uh, being sold, which we prefer typically that they find out after the transaction is completed. But the first fear that they have is, oh, are we going to have our job or are we going to, you know, is there going to be any adjustment to our compensation? And that is the biggest uncertainty that makes some employees uncomfortable. But now a new owner that comes in and they tend to promote someone from within and they keep the compensation structure the same. Um, it definitely helps uh, tremendously with the morale of the company. So in this type of situation where someone is coming in like this, a lot of times in the automotive or construction fields, the trade type of uh, businesses, the financials tend to be less than stellar. How was this uh, in this particular situation? Was this an issue? You know, uh, surprisingly, uh, you're first of all, you're absolutely right. When it comes to Main Street businesses, that is the biggest challenge that we face is uh, business owners not having organized financials. Uh, once we move into lower middle market uh, companies, at that point, they have a team in place uh, who's handling all the financials. Um, in this specific transaction, uh, the owner was extremely, extremely organized. Um, and most importantly, um, not that they only had the, the financial data organized, they were actually reporting all the financial data in their tax turns and everything that they were filing on a, uh, you know, on a quarterly basis with the state. Um, so that the banks love to see that. And uh, the buyers, of course, um, seeing that long history of constant cash flow and everything being reported and uh, and filed, um, it, tend to, it became a very attractive deal for the buyer and the bank. Well, sounds like things are going along pretty well here. What were the hiccups? What was the big deal in getting this transaction closed? It sounds like things were all lining up, promoting from within, real estate involved, good financials, sophisticated buyer coming in and buying it. So what happened? Well, we had, um, I think the biggest hiccup uh, that we had, uh, you know, in, in this deal was um, there was 
the communication between the bank and the appraisal companies that they use to value the business, um, that, that I, I think there was a, some type of miscommunication over there with the val where the valuation company came in at a little bit of a lower valuation as compared to where we had the deal. Yeah, let's just back up and unpack that comment you just made that the valuation came in lower than what the actual purchase price was or the agreed upon uh, transaction price, right? Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. And the, the case for that was because when as, essentially the value of the business is derived from the cash flow that's generating. And they were valuing the business as an owner-operated business as compared to an acquisition. So we had to communicate that to them and uh, make that adjustment within the valuation, which brought it, which essentially increased the cash flow and which brought up the valuation to uh, where we needed to be. So when you're talking a little bit about the communication between the bank and the appraiser, which is a third-party company out there, they were somewhat unaware that this was an acquisition versus an owner-operator. And obviously, when you have an owner-operator and you have to back out that or add to that amount for the compensation for the owner-operator, that reduced the value. That was the driving issue here. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's uh, valuations typically, you know, just a, a note on this. Typically, the valuations are, I would say, in 95% of the cases, really not negotiable with the financing institution. This was somewhat of a surprise to you that uh, you had an issue on valuation. And so the appraiser is the appraisal. And so you made the comment there that it is rare that valuations on an appraisal will change. I mean, that's kind of like poured concrete, you know, it, it sets up and, and you have to have a jackhammer to change anything. Were you able to actually get something changed in this situation and how and why? Well, it was really coming down to making the case for how the business was going to be acquired and how it was going to be operated. That was really the main factor that, you know, helped us make that adjustment. But the valuation, it was not a huge difference in the valuation as well. Um, so once we were able to add some more cash flow back into the business and prove that to the um, value, the, the company that was doing the valuation, it was able to bring it up to the point where we can get the deal done. Okay. So the real takeaway here, I guess, is you can actually challenge or argue an evaluation on an appraisal under certain circumstances. It would be, I wouldn't want to set a precedent with that, but in this case, it, it tended to be a unique um, situation where um, there was an acquisition scenario as compared to an owner-operator scenario, which is rare in uh, most of the Main Street um, deals that we do. Uh, most of the time, the owner-operators are coming in. But in this case, it was a very unique situation, and uh, we were able to make that adjustment and you know uh, get back on track. But uh, I'm definitely not expecting this to be uh, repeating itself in the future unless we are able to make a very strong case for it. So I guess for the takeaway for our audience here that's listening in is that you really need to understand the components and unpack what the appraisal differences are if, if it comes back as a surprise. And if you understand why the appraisal came in lower and what the criteria were for the differences, if that's valid, you can make an argument and present your case. And in this particular case, the appraisal was adjusted to reflect an acquisition versus an owner-operator. 
So I think it's cautionary out there for our audience to just be aware of how those valuation differences occur and why. Absolutely. And valuations, especially when it comes to business valuations, they're part subjective and part objective. Um, there is definitely a lot of subjective components to valuation. Of course, it has to be rooted in objective data, uh, which is primarily cash flow. But now when it comes to ad backs, uh, you know, there is some subjectivity over there, which can be argued, which is really where you can make your case. All right. Well, that's uh, an interesting outcome there. Uh, things were going along well until the appraisal showed up and you were able to resolve that. So that's that's a great outcome. So let's chat a little bit about another transaction that had a little bit different twist to it. Well, uh, there was another transaction for, um, it was a franchise fast food business deal that we did. It was also uh you know, I would say Main Street level business and um, it had the real estate component to it. Uh, and um, that one was also a retirement deal. So in these type of deals that have real estate, like the one we just chatted about in this particular situation where it also had real estate, what do you typically find? Is it 70, 30, 50, 50, 20, 80? You know, what's kind of the mixed real estate business that you find as a general rule? I know you can't make a, a broad sweeping statement on that, but as a general rule. I would say, you know, a lot of the stronger deals, uh, they tend to have real estate with it. Uh, but then uh, at the same time, there's a lot of businesses that do not include real estate, you know, that do not have real estate. What is the portion of real estate to business equity? you know, involved? Uh, typically, they're very close to, I would say, you know, it's either 50-50 or sometimes the business might have a little bit more value um, than the real estate, but it's typically, it comes in pretty close to one another, uh, especially with our experience. But once you go into lower middle market companies uh, where the cash flows are a lot higher and the multiples are higher, that's when, uh, you know, it completely goes into uh, the business having majority of the value and the real estate having just a minority part of the value. Yeah. So, but Main Street, typically you would be seeing about, you know, 50, 50, or it might go up to 70, 30, um, 70% being the business value and 30% being the real estate value. So in these type of situations, when you're talking restaurant or specific skilled transaction, were these buyers that showed up, were they from the restaurant business? So the uh, surprisingly, so both the buyers, so there were two partners that came in, uh, both of them had full-time jobs, but one of them um, had some prior experience uh, working in uh, fast food restaurants. And um, they came in, um, you know, they seem to be a great fit, especially when it comes to franchise restaurants, because you have a lot of training that's being provided to you by the franchisor. So a lot of people without even having really thorough knowledge of the industry can really get a solid uh, amount of training from the franchisor and they're able to run the, the businesses very efficiently. So the existing owner of this business, had they been around for a while? Yes. Yes. They have been around for um, also, it was at least, I think, a couple of decades that they've owned that business there. And uh, they actually had multiple locations. So it was uh, a deal where we were taking it to market one after the other. And uh, our first, first uh, the first deal that we did, uh, which is a transaction that we're going to discuss, it, you know, it was a, a learning experience involved with it, but at the same time, um, you know, we were able to um, successfully execute it and get to the finish line. So in this situation, when you have people that are coming in, were they local buyers or were they from out of town? They were from out of town. Oh. So they ended up, um, yeah, they ended up flying in to meet us and uh, that showed us the, the level of seriousness, the, the seriousness that they had. 
uh, for someone to come in from out of town and fly in just to meet us and learn more about the business. So that definitely put uh, the deal on the right track. Um, after that, uh, you know, they ended up, uh, we were able to make the offer and get all the rest of the work done remotely. But once we had a deal in place, um, we were able to remotely get them financed for the deal. And eventually, once the date got closer to the closing, they were able to move down here and ended up uh, getting a place here to live. And I assume because real estate was involved in a multi-location operation type of situation that there was an SBA financing involved. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I, I feel like SBA really likes the, the deals. Uh, the lenders specifically like the deals that include the real estate with it. So as this transaction evolved, what were the challenges that arose? So one of the most interesting challenges that came about in this uh, transaction was um, the the owner established the business, um, I think, in the 80s. And at that time, they ended up doing a franchise agreement between the owner personally and the franchisor. And as time passed on, the owner ended up filing a corporation, ended up switching all its assets under the corporation. And he was running that uh, business for two decades under that corporation and the same franchise agreement between him personally and the franchisor. Um, now, when time came to, um, you know, to close and we had uh, the banker's attorneys reviewing the transaction and all the documents, they found out that the seller um, in the entire purchase agreement and all the documents was not who the franchise, who the franchisee was on the franchise agreement. Let's just back this up. So when the corporation was formed and the business started operating as a corporation, the original franchise agreement was not transferred to the corporation, but stayed with the original owner, which was the founder or entrepreneur himself. Absolutely. Absolutely. And since then he had formed other, um, you know, franchises, um, you know, besides that single location. And the franchise agreement was never changed. Well, yeah, that's an interesting twist. Yeah. Sell, selling something you don't own. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So once we got closer to the, once we got the, the feedback from the attorneys of the bank um, and they told us about, uh, you know, the seller not being the same, we were kind of, uh, we were really caught off guard. We're like, what, what's about to happen? We we're four months into this deal. Um, getting almost to closing, and we find out that the seller is different. And once we found out the explanation, um, you know, we tried to make a case with the with the bank initially um, that um, uh, you know the the seller the the seller whose name is on the franchise agreement is the sole owner of the corporation. Would there be any way around it? And uh, the bankers were like, "Law is law. There's no way we can make any adjustments to that. Yeah. So any exceptions to it." Um, so hence, uh, we had to turn to the franchisor and um, come to find out that the franchisor said that we have to go through another process uh, similar to what we just went through with the new buyers to to transfer the franchise agreement from the, um, the owner personally to his corporation, um, which was uh, quite a shock. But uh, eventually we stayed at it. Uh, we ended up finding uh, someone a little bit um, higher up in the, in the bureaucracy chain. Um, who eventually were able to make that exception on transferring the franchise agreement over from the individual to the corporation, uh, which um, at the end of the day satisfied the, uh, the objection that the bank had, and uh, we ended up going to closing. 
Well, I know from prior experience in my world is that in the franchise world, there is a cost and sometimes a substantial cost to make those transfers of franchise agreements because it includes a whole series of things as far as legal review and liability and additional training and that's involved. And dealing with a franchise company adds an, an entirely different level of complexity to any transaction. Absolutely. And imagine having um, to switch two buyers uh, through the franchisor at one time in a deal. That was uh, definitely a very challenging situation. But uh, just like any other deals, we persist and uh, we stay at it till we get through to the finish line. Yeah, so I think the big takeaway here would be probably if you're dealing with a franchise company and a franchisor, you should expect additional expenses, number one. And with larger franchise systems, you are dealing with a bureaucracy and you have a legal department, you have an operational department, you have a marketing department, you have the corporate interests that are involved. And it can be time consuming and expensive to get all of the different criteria in place for those franchise transfers. Yeah, it's uh, one of the the key things that we tell um, sellers now is to make sure um, that their franchise agreements are in order before we're taking the businesses to market. So that was uh, definitely a, a major learning lesson in this deal for us. All right. So as we move forward here, I'd like to shift gears here, if that's okay, and talk about some transactions that had a different type of orientation as far as how the transaction actually turned out and maybe really transactions that turned out well and maybe really well for both the buyer and the seller. Absolutely. So there's definitely, uh, this business has some transactions that come with its challenges, but uh, once in a blue moon, we do get some transactions that go completely smoothly and the outcomes are uh, better than what we anticipated or expected now for the buyers and the sellers as well. And let's share one of those. Uh, that'd be exciting here. So um, I still want to keep some confidentiality on the business. So I'm not going to uh, refer to the type of business it was, um, uh, but I will give enough details so people can get a good understanding or listeners can get a good understanding of uh uh, the kind of business it was. So um, it was a business that was established since the 1800s, late 1800s, fourth generation business. Holy smokes. Yeah. You don't see too many of those around, 1800 business. Yeah. 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 It was uh, quite an honor to be able to represent the, the sellers on that transaction. And uh, that's very typical nowadays that we're experiencing with a lot of sellers that um, these generational businesses um, the their kids are getting more and more educated and they're um, you know having bigger aspirations than just running the family business and pursuing their own dreams and in this case um, the sellers their kids were decided to go separate route and uh, eventually they had to bring the business to market um, a- after the fourth generation running it so the fifth generation probably were professionals, doctors, attorneys, MBAs or whatever. And this was kind of a hands-on business, it sounds like. And they just didn't have an inclination to take over. So the fifth generation dropped the ball, huh? Absolutely. They, they, <laughs> it's hard when you're working with a retail business. It's hard work. You have to go to work every day. You're dealing with customers. And uh, once you're, you know, as you said, once you become a professional, you're an attorney or a doctor, um, of course, they, they have their own challenges. But uh, I think um, it's still a little bit more attractive than just running a retail business 
um, for your appearance. But it sounds like this was a really good realtor business. It was definitely a very, very excellent quality business. Yeah, something that's been around for a hundred plus years. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And it, they, they had good principles at the end of the day, which um, I think are necessary. I think it's going to go on for a lot more years. Um, especially with the type of buyer we ended up finding for this business. Okay. How did it unpack? How did it roll out? Yep. So we ended up finding people, the buyers, they um, retired a little bit earlier than they it, were expecting and still had a lot of energy and wanted to, uh, uh, they were coming from a high powered, uh, uh, high powered jobs uh, where it came with a lot of stress and they wanted to go into a business that uh, was associated with dealing with people on a daily basis. Uh, they wanted to, uh, bring, um, you know, add some positivity within the community that they were living in. And uh, that's when we ended up uh, meeting them and uh, showed them the business. They were absolutely ecstatic to see the business and also the rich history that the business had. Um, so uh, they ended up making an offer on it. And once uh, uh, one of the most important things that we uh, try to uh, notice when there's a buyer and seller meeting is um, the chemistry between them and whether they're getting along or not. And in this case, it was a perfect match. The buyers and the sellers really got along great. Once, once that happens, it makes our life a lot easier because at this point, we're not managing emotions. We're just managing the process. We don't have to worry about the buyer and the seller getting along, disagreements. Um, it's really, they're already um, really devoted to the deal. They want to make it work for uh, one another. And we're there to just manage the process and um, get them through um, to the finish line. Since this was a retail business, was this a pre-COVID transaction or during COVID transaction? It, yep, it was uh, right before it was a pre-COVID transaction. That's very interesting that you pointed that out. It, it was, uh, we closed on this transaction, I would say about two months before COVID hit full-fledged, um, you know, here uh, in the United States. Um, in Michigan, I think uh, it really got here. Um, end of April, end of March, early April. That's when you know everything was just uh, in shambles. People don't know, didn't know what was going on, and um, yeah. So the buyers ended up purchasing the business two months prior to uh, all of this unfolding. I'm just curious. We're talking about a transaction that turned out really well here, but this is a retail business. I'm just curious that a lot of retail businesses were devastated during the COVID episode here that we've been through. And a lot of businesses didn't survive. So share with me and our audience here a little bit about how this particular business either plateaued or went down or expanded. So what happened? Well, so this business surprisingly was one of those businesses. So initially, once uh, the pandemic hit, um, everybody had to shut down for, I think it was three weeks or two to three weeks. Everybody was just so uncertain on what was going on. Uh, they were scared and uh, people ended up uh, shutting their retail uh, parts, of their businesses down. Um, but then things started uh, somewhat coming back to, well, it didn't come back to normal till uh, I would say somewhat coming back to norm uh, normalcy uh, in 2021 with the vaccinations. But at that time, what we noticed with many of our clients was that how they made adjustments to their businesses. And in this case, um, the buyers uh, were sophisticated buyers. They were coming from um, the corporate world, understood technology, understood the new methods of doing things, processes. They ended up opening their business up um, from the uh, from e-commerce side. Um, they uh, added a lot of enhancements to their websites. They started doing remote orders for uh, their customers. 
And uh, surprisingly, they ended up increasing their business by almost, uh, I think it was 70 or 80 percent. Well, that is a success story in the middle of COVID, especially being agile enough to make changes and shift gears here and do it almost in real time. Yeah, absolutely. There, there were many businesses that got dramatically affected, like fine dining restaurants, and there was just nothing these entrepreneurs can do. Um, and uh, we really we felt for them. We felt terrible about it, that people had to go through that. But then at the same time, on another note, what we experienced with a lot of our um, you know, entrepreneurs that we deal with, whether they're buyers or sellers, um, that they essentially an entrepreneur has to make adjustments to challenges that are coming about, whether it's COVID, whether it's new technology coming out, um, you know, whether it's uh, competition, entrepreneurs have to make adjustments. And we noticed a lot of entrepreneurs that actually did exceptionally well during these times because um, they were able to make adjustments and the need in the market never really went away for the necessities, the essential uh, needs that the market has, th those needs were still there. Uh, the government kicked in and uh, tried to assist a lot of the people that were at home through the, uh, whether it was through PPP loans, whether it's through um, the, the funds that they gave out to the public, uh, there was still a demand for these products, but a lot of the well, business owners that became uh, uh, essentially paralyzed by fear of what was going on, um, experienced a lot more losses as compared to entrepreneurs that were able to make adjustments and really adapt to the situation and figure out new ways to service these customers. There's another thing that I think is interesting here as you reflect on this transaction. You have a business that's been around 100 years, obviously been through in 100 years, a lot of changes and evolution that took place in the business. And they were probably willing to make those changes and were able to make those changes over the decades that they'd been in the business. But when you have a situation, I guess, where you have the owners, this fourth generation, of owners that wasn't going to be able to pass the torch on, that they were able to really find someone that had the ability to evolve the business. So we have a situation here where they exited probably fairly attractively. Yeah. And uh, you had a new buyer that came in with a different skill set and were able to take a business and you said 70, 80% plus to increase the actual sales of that business. So that was really a home run for almost everyone involved in this transaction. Absolutely. And we did some other similar transactions as well during these times where uh, we were actually meeting with a buyer uh, just recently uh, they ended up buying a business from us and um, ended up implementing a lot of the newer technologies, which is adding the e-commerce system, online ordering. It was a food-related business. Um, and they were able to right away increase their business by 25% in the first month of acquiring the business. That makes a big difference on reducing the risk involved with almost any transaction in the uncertain times, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, there are some people that are looking at this time as when there's a lot of movement in the market, there's a lot of entrepreneurs that come out to take advantage of opportunities that are being generated by so much movement in the market. We have a lot of businesses that are shutting down. And uh, the the way people shop, the way people order the products is changing. And uh, the businesses that are coming in uh, th that were already existing that are adapting to those changes are experiencing a lot of success. And the new entrepreneurs that are coming in buying already existing businesses that are distressed now in this case and making these adjustments that they understand that the market needs 
are experiencing uh, enormous amounts of success. Well, I remember back in the early part of this uh, decade, the turn of the century here, where we had a big downdraft in the dot-com bubble. All of the companies that we think emerged after that were actually born and started during the most horrific technology downturn ever. And they came out of the rubble of that. And we know them as premium brands here today. And then we had the same thing happen in the financial crisis, the Great Recession in 2007, 8, 9. Companies thrived and survived in that. And new companies were born out of that economic malaise that uh, occurred there. And I think we're going to see the same thing this time, is that where there is tremendous change, uh, uncertainty, there's always, always opportunities. And for those that are agile, those that can understand what needs to be done to reposition companies, to insert technology, to, as you said, create online ordering and enhance their web presence. Those are diamonds in the rough that will emerge spectacularly successful. And so I don't think it's necessarily all doom and gloom here that the pandemic has brought on. It's, it's created an opportunity in many situations for companies to be a phoenix and rise and become something they would probably never have looked at becoming, or at least for an extended period of time, they wouldn't have become and it was forced on them. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's about the mindset at the end of the day. It's, uh, you know, staying strong. Challenges are coming in. Just always having the belief that you can make the adjustments and keep going. Again, you know, I do want to point out that there were a lot of people that could not make any adjustments. They just didn't have any options. And we're, you know, we really feel for them. But at the same time, there were other people that still could, business owners that could make adjustments and did not. Um, and um, it ended up uh, leading to uh, their businesses um, not succeeding during these times. Right. So I guess the real takeaway from that transaction is that there are opportunities out there and diamonds in the rough that if you can insert a different business model or add to a business model, you can really take a business to the next level. I guess that's the big takeaway here. And there are opportunities out there. So let's move on to kind of wrap it up here today, Haroon, with uh, a transaction that worked out spectacularly or at least very well. Well, we had um, we currently we recently did another transaction for a small business that we ended up selling about, I would say, seven or eight years ago. And uh, a person bought this business when it was um, pretty much just an asset sale. There was nobody there. There were no employees. To define an asset sale, you're saying basically there was little revenue and it was sold for just what was there as far as assets, furniture, equipment, things of that nature. And the value of the the person having a lease at that specific location, basically. That was really the, the, the real goodwill that was um, there in this business at that time. And um, the, the buyer ended up purchasing the business. They were motivated. Um, and, um, you know, we just kind of sold the business and moved on. You know, it's uh, we typically try to stay in touch as much as we can. But sometimes the, the buyers, they want to focus on their businesses and not have to talk to their broker every couple of weeks. You know, so we let them do what they have to do. And um, after uh, recently, we had the same buyer reach out to us. And they're like, hey, you know, we're uh, ready to sell our business. So this is like, what, seven, eight years later then? Seven, eight years later, yeah. Okay. So we're, we pulled up the file and we saw that, okay, it was a small business at that time and we're expecting the same. We're like, maybe it's working, uh, you know, a little bit better than what it was before. Maybe they have some revenues. But it turned out that uh, 
Um, they had taken the uh, you know 1,400 square foot uh, business and expanded it to almost 5,000 square feet with over 20 employees and doing almost a million a year in in revenues. That's interesting. Yeah. How did they grow it from a small footprint of a little over a thousand square feet to five thousand square feet? Did they move locations? Uh, no, they actually just ended up. Uh, it was uh, located in a plaza. They ended up just kept as soon as any business went out of the plaza, they kept expanding. Uh, the business uh, adjacent to the units that were available to them. So they just kind of almost like cancer grew into the next location, <laughs> yeah, huh? Absolutely. And uh, with this uh, business owner, what really we felt like uh, the business owner was very inspiring. Uh, they were motivated. They had really their heart into it. And uh, that lead, that's that can be very contagious um, to employees. And that's how you add on to your team and grow your business. And uh, secondly, there was a very deep, um, interest in client-focused uh, services. So they wanted to make sure that they are being the best that they can for their clients. They're providing exceptional service. And uh, coupling that together where you have good employees that are inspired by the leader and at the same time, um, you have a, a philosophy or a value of really being uh, making all your decisions to um, enhance client service. Uh, that's just a perfect recipe for success. So in this particular situation where a company well-run, I guess, by an enthusiastic entrepreneur that could execute at a fairly high level, they were able to continue to add employees, continue to add revenue, continue to grow their business. And I guess what you're telling me is that they were just ready to retire. This was the motivation of them exiting the business, right? Absolutely. They were retiring as well. Um, so they ended up reaching out to us and um, luckily we were able to find uh, a, another buyer um, as motivated and they wanted to take uh, the business even to a higher level and add by adding more services that the, the market needed. And uh, we're very, very optimistic on this deal and the future of the buyer. So you're saying the new buyer may not double the size of the footprint, but would double the size of the revenue by adding additional services that are probably underserved in that particular market. Yeah, we hope so. We hope so. We really, you know, being in this business, we get a good feel for business owners when we meet them. We understand there's some business owners that are coming in that just want to, um, I would say they're more so task-focused as compared to being goal-focused. And those buyers are typically uh, coming in, um, you know, they just want to keep the business at the same level. Do the, They're basically buying a job. They're coming in, they want a stream of cash flow, and they're buying the business just to keep it going. They don't want to, you know, do any drastic changes. Of course, you want to evolve with times, but they're not trying to go in and really uh, be motivated to grow the business. And then we have the other types of buyers that are coming in that are more goal focused. They have a vision. They want to grow the business to that vision that they have. And in this case, the buyer was also similar to um, the seller, who's our client, that, that they had a vision to grow this company to um, the next level. So to me, that is the first factor that we're looking at um, to seeing what this business owner is going to do and um, if they have a vision or not. When it comes down to execution, we do have faith in them executing, but you know, there's no really guarantees that we can make on that part. So what you're really saying, I think if we were to wrap this uh, transaction up by a takeaway here, we're really saying that the business really doesn't make you necessarily. You make the business or the entrepreneur makes the business. And it's all about vision and execution. You can have the vision, 
If you don't have the execution, but when you have both of them, you create a dynamic that can really enhance the value of a business and make it a lot easier for an entrepreneur founder to exit the business. Absolutely. That's something that we tell all of our buyers that it's not you, the business is not going to make you, you have to make the business. You know, it's, it comes in with hard work, dedication, and um, you have to constantly be improving the business and uh, running it efficiently. All right. Well, this has been a delightful conversation. I appreciate you taking the time to share your experiences, your transactions with us here today. I'm sure that those in the audience that are in that world of the mergers and acquisition main street type of business and looking for and looking to exit from these type of businesses have gotten a lot of good ideas and information here that can create a little bit different orientation as they're exiting or looking to acquire a business. Well, this has been great. So, if someone wanted to reach out to you, Haroon, how would they do that? What's the best way for someone in our audience to get a hold of you if they wanted to chat with you? Absolutely, Marvin. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for you know having me on uh, your podcast. It's uh, I'm glad that you're shedding light on uh, on business exit stories because I feel like a lot of business owners uh, do not know that there is actually professionals out there that specialize in selling businesses. So uh, for anyone that wants to reach us, um, I would say preferably the best way would be to just call our office and talk to either me um, or um, any of our brokers. Um, anybody, uh, we can you can reach us at 248-855-6767. You can also visit us online on capitalbusinessbrokerage.biz. All right, well, thank you very much. And this is Marvin L. Storm from Business Exit Stories, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember, maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically. It takes planning.